I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so that you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... The Boone Island Cannibals. Who were the Boone Island Cannibals? In December of 1710, a British merchant vessel shipwrecked six miles off the coast of Maine. All 14 crew members initially survived, but winter conditions with no fire or food on a barren outcrop led to one of society's most ultimate taboos. Act 1. From the Earth to the Boone. Boone Island is a desolate, rocky location six miles from the coast of York, Maine. At low tide, the island is approximately 300 feet by 700 feet. It currently houses the tallest lighthouse in New England, which stands at 137 feet high. English Puritan lawyer and one of the leaders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop, mentioned sailing past Boone Island in the 1600s. The island is known for being the site of numerous shipwrecks. The first important wreck is where the island gets its English name. Coastal trading ship Increase wrecked on the island in the summer of 1682. The ship's four survivors, three Europeans and one Native American, survived solely on fish and seagull eggs. They were on the island for a month when they noticed smoke coming from a fire on the nearby Mount Agamenticus in York, Maine. The survivors started a fire which was noticed by those on the mountain, who soon rescued the castaways. They viewed their rescue as a boon from God, so they dubbed it Boone Island. But 19th century New England-based poet Celia Thaxter once described Boone Island as the forlornest place that can be imagined. As the daughter of a lighthouse keeper and the author of My Lighthouse and Other Poems, she was somewhat of an expert on barren, rocky islands. Uh, I love I love the idea that... <laughs> I love the the idea that there's uh just like a subgenre of lighthouse poetry, you know? That's like the shoegaze or like the goth music or like the Yeah, it's like it's like a subgenre of like uh, pirate shanty songs, you know? <laughs> if pirate shanties are like the electronica, then lighthouse poetry is the doom goth subgenre of it. And I love the idea that like you know, uh, what? what's her name? Celia Thaxter. I love the idea that, like, Celia Thaxter would be, like, the Nepo baby of the uh, the burgeoning, <laughs> you know, uh, New England lighthouse poetry scene where people are like, you don't even truly love lighthouses. You were born in one. Like, you, you don't even know. That's not what it would be. It would be, like, that she presents herself as this, like, super indie lighthouse poet And everybody thinks that she's like this really cool, really indie person. And then some guy on, you know, 17th century TikTok is like, actually, did you know that Thelia Thaxter is actually a Nepo baby? Yeah. And then he but it's not it's you know what it is? It's like the the 1700s equivalent or 1600 equivalent of that is like him just like going to the local butter churn place and like gossiping with people. (laughs) There's like some woman who's just like, I don't care. I'm trying to churn this fucking butter. Leave me alone. And he's like, no, you don't even understand. Celia Thaxter is here for the clout. She's not even really a fucking lighthouse poet. All right. She was born in one. She's just using it for the clout. (laughs) Yes. Celia Thaxter is the fucking king princess of the 1600s. 
Yeah. She and that and the the guy uh, that's spreading all these rumors is that dude on TikTok who's constantly like uh, insert musical artist here is a nepo baby and they fucking suck and here's why and it's like I bro yeah honestly I I hate that guy <laughs> I like it's it's funny that you brought that up because I hate that guy like because it's like it, the the things he's saying are not technically wrong like it's not it's he's he's not incorrect and it's also. I think valuable to understand that, that like certain people have just gotten these advantages because their families are rich or they're literally in the industry. Like, you know, him talking about the strokes and how they, they seem like they're this like indie, like group of like street hooligans or whatever, but they're actually just all from like mega rich families and musician families. Like that, that's not incorrect. But I don't know. There's something about somebody who's just built their entire brand off of like, I'm going to point out this information that you could easily Google and pretend like I'm like educating the world when I'm really just trying to build my own channel and get views is just it just annoys me. Yeah. I mean, what's the thing that he always says? Uh, Self-made is a toxic myth. And it's like, yeah, yeah. okay, yes. All right. But like, what else do you have to say? Like that guy's videos pop up all the time and they're always you repeat the same thing over and over again, which is like I Googled this person's family and found out that they are rich and I'm going to make another video saying the exact same thing. Yeah. And like like you said, like I agree also, like it's it's frustrating how some people are just born on third base. But at the end of the day, like, what are you going to do about it? Like, do you want to sit here and just complain about how everyone else is born with a head start or put your fucking nose to the grindstone and try and make some shit? You know, like that's what it totally feels like with that guy. It feels like it just seems like he because he's he's a musician and it just feels like he got frustrated that he wasn't making any headwind in the industry. And then he made one video about this and he saw line go up. And he's like, oh, my God. I got a million views for saying that. And then he just leaned into it. And now his life has become focusing on how others are more fortunate than him and building like a whole brand around that. Which is probably not even what that person's real life is like. Like they're probably not even they're probably not even focused on that in their real day to day existence. Right. But because they got that positive feedback on it, now they're just out here Celia Thaxtering around, being like, you don't understand lighthouse culture the way I do. These are called one-star conversations from now on because these are why we get one-star reviews on, on, on iTunes. Boone Island received its first beacon, a precursor to a lighthouse in 1799. As it was made of wood, the beacon only lasted five years on the island. In 1811, its first stone lighthouse was erected, which was 32 feet above the water. 20 years later, it was rebuilt to stand 49 feet above the water. That's actually, that's a, that's kind of crazy because like that doesn't, obviously doesn't happen now. Like that's not how infrastructure really works. But like to think back on not that long ago, like, you know, a couple hundred years ago where they were just regularly have to rebuild cities to like, number one, keep up with like advancing technologies, but also because just the building materials they use were inherently much more, um, uh, they 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 broke down or wore much faster, whereas now like we built we build things to last you know a long time. Yeah, well, we're also not building shit with like literally a screwdriver, <laughs> you know. Like uh, you know, if you had a if you had a fucking uh, nail gun back then, that you'd have been burned at the stake for uh, witchcraft. <laughs> 
motherfuckers just out here with their little uh, shoes with buckles on them and giant hats, you know, fucking John standishing around. You show up with like a tool belt. They're like, what witchcraft is this? I, I, honestly, I think in that case, they wouldn't do it, though. Like in that case, like they would start to do it. Like they would have the guy with the nail gun and they would be like heretic. And they'd be like, wait a minute. What does that thing do? Fuck it. I'm converting to black magic. I want a home. There's like this shit's dope. <laughs> I love the idea, too, that I love the idea, too, that like uh, everybody just dresses like a Quaker. But then there's like one or two modern things about how they dress like. You know, oh, uh, we got to get old William Stander standing stander to come down here and help us build this fucking church. And he shows up with like a fanny pack. It's, it's completely 1700s get up, but the fanny pack. It's like, what is that? What is that uh, ungodly, ungodly contraption around your waist, William? And he's like, oh, it's a fanny pack. Look, you can put all kinds of stuff in it. They're just, you know, the fanny pack is the thing where they're just like, they're like, we must arrest this heretic. Wait a minute. What is that? Oh, it's it's a fanny pack. What is this fanny pack? Why'd you pronounce it like that? I just said it. Just fucking tell us. Well, you know, it's a little thing. You strap it around your, uh, your waist comes from the, uh, the, Br- the British version of fanny, which is actually your, is actually, uh, you know, your, the front of you as opposed to the back of you. For some reason, we got that backwards when we, when we came uh, over here on the, Mayflower, we flipped the script on that one, but yeah, you put it on your front and you just zips open and you just store stuff in it. And they're just like, oh my God, this is a miracle. You're not a heretic. You're a man of Christ. <laughs> the reason why we live in this puritanical Judeo-Christian hellscape today is because one guy wore a fanny pack. <laughs> yeah. You know, the first cult in America was actually the cult of fanny pack. Mm-hmm, yeah. A lot of people don't know that. They think they think because it's such an established mainstream religion, they just think of it ubiquitously. But when you really think about it, it's basically a cult. Yeah, it's basically a cult. You know that? Like, it's basically. Yeah, when you really think about it, if you're really thinking about it, fanny packianity is actually a cult. If you ever went to the Vatican and you fucking popped up under the Pope's little dress thing, he's got like four fanny packs in there. You don't even know. A lot, a lot of little boys saw that. And now we're moving on. <laughs> hey, man, fight the real power. R.I.P. Sinead O'Connor. Yeah, agreed. Then in 1845, the tallest lighthouse in New England was erected, 137 feet above sea level. Because of its desolate location, lighthouse keepers willing to live there are few and far between, with many arriving and departing shortly after. Only one keeper truly enjoyed his time there, Willem Dafoe. No, William C. Williams. William C. Williams tended the lighthouse for 27 years and lived until he was over 90. 1978 saw one of the harshest blizzards in New England history. Two keepers took shelter inside the light chamber, while every other structure was demolished. The day after, they were rescued by a helicopter. The Coast Guard then repaired the tower and installed solar panels so that the light could be automated. And then here's a little photo guy. All right, so we're looking at this island. That shit is bleak, and uh, calling that shit an island is a little bit of an overstatement. That shit looks like it's maybe... 50 feet wide and maybe 60 70 feet long we got a light tower in the middle of the island and then two structures a red brick structure and a gray brick structure with a roof and then the solar panels um and man this looks like uh this looks like a some sort of forced celibacy prison camp or something where it's just like nah bro here live on this fucking island yeah i mean i i think i feel like i feel like 
being a lighthouse keeper would be the creepiest, loneliest job ever. Like you have to, you have to be a very, like you have to be either, which is probably the case. This was probably the main motivating factor for most people, especially during this time. You have to either be in such poverty and financial dire straits that like any, any job you will take, or you have to just be like a very specific type of person who just literally has zero interest in human interaction or any kind of emotional warmth whatsoever. Because you're not just alone. You're not just like, oh, I'm living in my apartment. You're you're alone with a capital A. You're so alone that you're not alone. You're with like the fucking Shoggoth old ones that permeate the the fucking stratosphere. Like there's 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 love Lovecraftian beasts watching you out here. Yeah, it's so bleak. Like there's not even like a tree or a bush on this little island thing. It's like there's not even sand. It's just rocks and water. Yeah, I don't know, man. Could you do this? Could you live on something like this? Absolutely not. The 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 isolation is is fine. Like I wouldn't care about the being alone part, but the just the location. It would I would I would be terrified to be out there by myself. Like I, I, I get I get like very creeped out very easily when I'm alone, when I'm with somebody like I don't care. Like a, like one of the one of like the scariest nights I've ever had was I was living in Santa Cruz. And at the time I had a, a paper route. So my job was just like delivering newspapers out in the like this these like wooded communities in in Santa Cruz, California before and basically like i would i would go out at one in the morning so like my job like i'd be at at the house all day hang out with my uh my roommates and then i would leave at one and come back at like and so i'm hanging out and we watched this movie called the fourth kind which was like this kind of shitty horror movie with mila jopovich where it was presented as if it was based on a true story and it had like kind of an interesting mechanic where it pretended like it was this real story that happened. And there was like a total kayfabe in the movie where it starts out Mila Jopovich like being interviewed. And she's like, the following movie was based off of this real event that happened. And we're going to show some of the real footage from the events or whatever. And then it would show like the dramatization with Mila Jopovich and the actors playing the characters and then it would sometimes show what was supposed to be like caught on camera footage of the real people so they had like actors who were like playing the real life versions of the people who were in the movie like as the actors playing them and it presented it like it was like all this footage that they found that they were like kind of cross-cutting but it was all it was all fake um and it was it was not scary it was it was dumb and i and we watched the movie and i was like that was fucking stupid and then I went out and I got in my car and I drove out and picked up my papers. And then I went out to these like desolate wooded areas at one in the morning. And I was like, suddenly that movie was the scariest fucking thing I ever saw in my life. And I was like, I was so terrified. I was like creeped out the whole night. I was like driving around by myself in the woods at two in the morning. And I'm just like, the fucking aliens are going to get me. Mila Jojovich is going to get me. Yeah, Mila Jovovich. So yeah, if I was out here, like I would be fucking terrified. This would be the scariest shit to me. Yeah, I also would not choose to do this. But I think it would, I think for a lot of people, the isolation would be the thing. Like I, th- I think most people aren't as creeped out when they're by themselves as I am for whatever reason. 
but most people need human interaction in a way that I don't necessarily. On New Year's Day in 1711, the York County coroner was called upon to examine a frozen body found among a mess of seawood in Wells, Maine. The gaunt body was covered in sores and clearly died while trying to make it to land in a makeshift raft found not too far away. Boone Island was clearly the best candidate for where the body came from. I mean, this is just, this is reminding me of our conversation from, I think it was the Molasses Massacre episode about future privilege. Um, this this episode's really reminded me of future privilege because it's like, when you lived back in these times, it was just like, the it, your life was just mostly misery. <laughs> And like there was maybe some moments of joy, but it was like the, the 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 neutral resting state of existence was misery. It was like you had like you had to do miserable jobs in order to make money to survive, like fucking live in a lighthouse on a little desolate plot of land with nothing and no one. And like freezing to death was just like the, the question was like, am I not going to freeze to death today? That was the question. Yeah. Is today is today where I survive? Can I fucking survive? Yeah, like this shit was bleak. Coroner Lewis Bain went to Cape Nettick and convinced local fisherman John Stover to take him to Boone Island. Lewis John and his first mate then set sail for the island six miles away. Upon getting closer, they noticed a white object on the island's highest point. As they approached the island, the white object turned out to be a white tent flapping in the breeze. Stover navigated the boat as close as he could get and dropped anchor, then boarded a canoe to the island. The three men all had beards and no overcoats. Captain John Dean identified himself and told them to either evacuate the men or come ashore and build a fire. When Stover stepped on the island, he was shocked to see the captain covered in sores. But what he saw inside the white tent left him speechless. Bad Boon Rising. Captain John Dean was born in Nottingham, Nottinghamshire, East Midlands, I know that's not actually funny. And anybody who's from the UK is like, what? What are you, what are you laughing about? <laughs> that's, that struck me as funny. Sorry, your, your fucking names of your cities are weird. Captain John Dean was born in Nottingham, Nottinghamshire, East Midlands, England in 1679. He grew up in relative poverty and apprenticed to a butcher as a teenager. 19th century writer W.H.G. Kingston wrote that Dean rose to the rank of captain in the Royal Navy and participated in the capture of Gibraltar during the War of the Spanish Succession. After leaving the Royal Navy, he became a merchant sailor. Here's the thing. Say what you want about the about the United States. And, you know, we, we portray ourselves as the best country in the world. And a lot of people are critical of that and say we're not the best country in the world. And there's all these problems. But one thing I'll say we got right was we just shortened shit. That was a mouthful. All those names, names of wars, like in the, in the U.S., we're just like, your name is Bob Smith. You're from... Kentucky? That's about as complex as our names are going to get here. Yeah, I mean, we only just take the names of their names. Yeah, but then we, but then we fucking shorten them. No, we don't. We then we then we put new in front of it. <laughs> We're so unimaginative that we just do. Oh, you got a place called York? How about New York? Oh, you got Hampshire? Hampshire? We're gonna fuck it up and call it New Hampshire. <laughs> yeah, new, newer is better. Future privilege, baby. Future privilege. With the help of his father and brother, Dean was able to purchase a small merchant ship which he christened the Nottingham Galley. On September 10th, 1710, the Nottingham Galley set sail for Ireland from London with a cargo of rope. 
It was one of the many merchant ships in the convoy protected by two Royal Navy warships. As the War of the Spanish Succession was still raging, the Nottingham galley separated from the convoy and sailed to Killy Beggs, where Dean intended to add butter and cheese to his cargo. But the crew spotted two sails likely belonging to French privateers. Two different versions of the events exist, with Dean claiming to intend to invade the privateers, but the crew claimed that he attempted to sail towards the privateers, hoping to be captured in order to collect the ship's insurance policy. In addition to believing he was a traitor, Dean was a sadistic captain and once beat two sailors so badly they couldn't work for a month. With a threat of mutiny, the Nottingham Galley left Ireland and headed to North America. Reaching Canada, which was then controlled by the French, the ship spent a week off the coast of Newfoundland. When the crew spotted sails coming towards them again, instead of fleeing, Dean opened the bar to the crew and donned his finest clothes, likely expecting a French ship, but the ship turned out to be an English galley. Likely let down, Dean had the Nottingham galley sail down the coast where they ran into a sleet storm in the Gulf of Maine on December 10th, 1710. Dean beat Langman bloody and set course for land. The next day, the Nottingham galley struck Boone Island and splintered into pieces. The crew were able to remove the mast and use it to crawl on to safely reach the island. Yeah, you know, that's that's interesting because that's, you know, that's similar to how this show works where, you know, we, we do the show and if we ever have like a disagreement on a direction, like a type of episode we should do or like when we should do a certain thing or something in the story, you just beat me to a bloody pulp until I just relent and let you do it your way. Yeah, that's definitely what happens. That's definitely what happens as... As the one of us who's a foot and a half shorter and made of skin and bones, yes, definitely what happens. I'm like the podcast equivalent of a power bottom, really. <laughs> I don't even I don't even really know what that means. I mean, I, I <laughs> like in this context, I'm not quite sure what that means, but it's very funny to me. I mean, it, made, it, made, it checked out to me. It made sense to me. All, all I'm saying is. Every once in a while, you go you go full of mice and men and tell me about the rabbits. That's true. That's true. We got, an, we got another picture of this lighthouse. It's kind of the same as the other one, though. Yeah, it's the other side of the lighthouse. But now you can see that one of the structures is a little house made of fucking particle board. That shit looks so cold. That shit looks so cold. That has zero insulation. You'd think that, like... Cause like this is like a mo- like this is a modern day view of it, and it's supposed to be like, oh, this is how it is, and like now they have a house at least. You you'd think that they would have splurged a little bit more on the house construction. This thing looks like a Lincoln log house, dude. A Lincoln log house looks like it would have been more insulated. Yeah, there'd be a little bit more insulation from those little logs, whatever those are made out of wood, I guess. Yeah, that that particle board shit. No thanks. That also just looks like it. You get like splinters from looking at it wrong. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you like, if you like, get out of bed wrong in the morning, you just you get your your just whole body is just filled with splinters. That's why that's why so many of the lighthouse keepers die there is because they get like Bob Marley'd. They get like feet infections, you know, from like walking around and getting splinters in their bobs of their feet and shit. Yeah, yeah. Their feet are like pin cushions. Yeah, this sounds like a a Clive Barker story. Feet pin cushion man. He didn't realize how erotic it would be until he stepped foot into Forlorn Island where no one could see him squirm under the delicious, I mean, painful splinters. Yeah, it's like, it's like a story about a lighthouse keeper who gets splinters in his feet and then he just like derives sexual pleasure from like picking them out. And every time he like picks one out, he like opens a rift into hell wider. 
3, Dark Side of the Boom. All 14 crew members of the Nottingham Galley survived the crash and made it ashore, but the ship and most of its cargo were lost to the sea. They used the sail to make a makeshift tent for some semblance of shelter. They also found some cheese and beef bones that managed to float ashore. On the first day, Langman killed a seal, which they ate raw because they couldn't start a fire. The second night, the ship's cook died, whose body they pushed into the sea. They found a few mussels and even cowhide, which they cut up and swallowed. Langman killed the second seagull, which they ate again raw. Dang, that, uh, like, fucking second day your cook dies? Like, the, f- the, the main thing you're worried about is, like, eating? And you're just like, man, this is gonna be rough. But at least we have somebody who knows how to, like, cobble together ingredients to make something edible that we can kind of eat and, like, nourish ourselves without being totally disgusting and get through this. And then day two, he's like, ugh, I could have turned that seagull into a flug raw. <laughs> I've got an idea for how to do ratatouille with a shoe leather. Ugh. Fuck, he's dead. <laughs> I had an idea about how to do a ratatouille with a shoe leather. It would have been delicious and nutritious. It would have been surprisingly delicious in a way that you would have never thought that leather could be. Well, I guess we don't have a choice. Hand me that leather. Let's just eat it. Just, just let, let's just get it wet. Let's let's get this. Let's get this down. They're like trying to convince each other that like seawater makes it tastier. George, George, just dip the cheese in the seawater. It's actually not too bad. And the, the irony that that uh, they're as uh, you know, spoiler alert, they're they're get they're they're getting to the place where they're going to start partaking of the forbidden meat. But the but they but the the cook of all people they kicked into the ocean. Yeah, he probably could have helped them uh, flambe that human. Being only six miles from shore, the castaways could see ships sailing into and out of Portsmouth Harbor when the weather was clear. That's fucked up. That's fucked up. Because, like, nowadays, it's like, you know, you get lost at sea or you get stranded on an island or something like that. When, when that stuff, kind of, when that kind of stuff happens, you got to be, like, totally isolated. That's because, you know, if otherwise you could just, like, use a cell phone and just be like, hey, bruh, kind of need some help over here. But back then, like, they could they weren't even that far away from civilization. They could see the ships. They just had zero way of, of contacting them. It's my nightmare. No, thank you. Like, that would be fucked. Because at least if, if you're totally stranded out in the middle of nowhere, like, you get it. You're like, ah, fuck, we're fucked. Like, there's nobody around. We are. F-. But to sit there and be able to watch people within eyesight and just still be fucked was probably utter torture. I wonder if there's a way, because six miles is a long ass distance to swim. But I wonder if there's a way to train for that. Like, if you did laps around the island for like a couple months, would you increase your endurance to the fact that you could make it all the way there? But then you don't have any food. So it's not like you're, so it's just like burning fake, you know, it's burning calories you don't have. Yeah, you can't, yeah, there's no way for you to train or do anything like that because you have no fuel. But also I think the water is probably freezing cold. Like the the other guy tried to make it to the shore and he was frozen to death basically. Three ships sailed near Boone Island, but the castaways couldn't get their attention. A Swedish crewman slapped together a raft and sail and set off for the mainland with another sailor. The Swede was never seen again, but the other sailors' bodies washed up ashore, eventually leading to their rescue. That that Swedish guy was D.B. Cooper. Yeah, D.B. Cooper is a fucking Highlander. And every, every couple hundred years, he just like appears somewhere and then just like jumps off a plane and disappears again. Here we are. We're jumping out of a plane one more time. That's that's the 
better Highlander 2. That's what they should have done. Yeah, yeah, they should have just made Connor McCloud into D.B. Cooper. Yeah. The plot of that movie is so fucking weird. That movie fucking sucks. The Renegade cut is significantly better, but it still fucking sucks. Just the idea that, like, there's a movie about a, a immortal, ancient warrior who travels across the globe fighting and killing other warriors in order to gain the ultimate power. And then the sequel is like, now he's an old scientist who built a dome around the earth that blocked the sun out and he's an alien i mean that that's that part is that's the part that everyone hates but just the setup for the movie is fucking strange to me that they're like now he's like an old guy with a wife and he's like a sci- a famous scientist like that, that's a- <laughs> they completely change what the fucking what the quickening is like it's no longer ultimate knowledge now it's just like stuff who it, it it's it's not anything in the sequel in the first movie it's like the ability to communicate with anybody anywhere in the world and spread knowledge and help you know unifying into world peace basically is what they insinuate at the end of the movie right and then the second movie they're just like actually uh it's just gonna bring back sean connery yeah and also it's like his universal knowledge he uses to like build this dome around the earth to block to block out the sun and then everyone's like mad at him for it it's like it's just it's a weird idea for a sequel to the, what the Highlander is. It's a fucking weird idea, not in a good way. No, not in a good way. But but it's interesting though because all of the Highlander theatrical sequels never really explore the quickening or any of those, any of the mechanisms of the Highlander world in any interesting way. But the TV show really does. Like the TV show has the it, it introduces this idea of like my boy Duncan. Yeah, with Duncan, America runs on Duncan. <laughs> yes. Adrian Paul plays Duncan McLeod. Um, but the the show is really cool because it like introduces this idea of like light and dark quickenings and you can absorb knowledge or like the idea that if you kill an evil Highlander, you become like them and you have their knowledge and you take on their personality traits is really cool. And that should it may it's such a great logical extension of the stuff from the movies. And they just never do that. Like when when, you know, Connor kills the Kurgan, like it's fine. He's like sick. There's no real downside to killing this guy. It's all good. Like, it's really interesting that he would have maybe taken on some of the negative aspects and had the negative memories. And like, that'd be really cool. But they don't do that. Well, if you if you listen to the DVD commentary for the movies, I don't think they were thinking that deeply about it. No, no, definitely not. Like there, there's a there's a there's a sex scene in Highlander 2 and in the in the DVD commentary. We this this was a reshoot. Oh, because it's it's the it's the renegade cut or no, it's not the renegade. Well, it is the renegade cut, but it, the, the, there's the sex scene in the movie, and they're like, this was a reshoot because we shot the movie and we realized that there wasn't any hot sex scenes in it, so we went and shot this as a pickup. Which I just I thought that was so funny that they were just like like nowadays all these reshoots for MCU movies are they're just like they're just like we shot this movie and it fucking sucks. We got to go in and like reshape this shit. But back then they were just like, this movie isn't hot enough. We got to go give us give us fifty thousand dollars to go see, shoot a sex scene, please. Uh, not to have a shameless plug here, but uh, as you can tell from this conversation, I'm a little bit obsessed with the Highlander films and TV series. And in the back matter of Halloween Boy 2, there's like a 3000 word essay that I wrote all about the movie Highlander and how it's a uh, metaphor for Russell Mulcahy's uh, gay relationships 
and uh, it's great. And the behind the scenes kerfluffle of uh, Highlander 2. So (laughs) if you want more of me riffing about Highlander, there's a bunch of it in the back of Halloween Boy 2. Born to be kings. Oh, yeah, I, I love that song. Me too. But like, I canonically love that song. Oh, that's right. Yes, you do. The weather got worse, with snow covering the island, freezing the men's clothes to their bodies. The ship's carpenter, a big man of 47, fell silent and died that night. Man, they were, they were, they're fucking batting zero on this. All the people that are survived are their shitty, abusive captain. And the people that are dying are like cook, carpenter, any person who could provide any kind of value that would help you survive. They're the first to die. There's like, oh, shit, like our cook died last week and now our carpenter died. What are we going to do, Captain? And he's like, I don't fucking know. All I know how to do is beat people near to death. My skill set does not apply here. You want me to beat you to death? Although I could do that. Like, like, I guess I could. That's what I could do. I could like put people out of their misery by beating them to death. Is that, is that, does that sound good? Does that sound like something you want? Yes, daddy. I mean, wait, no, <laughs> no, we're trying to survive and get off this island. Oh, no, Captain, I I swabbed the deck wrong. Please don't beat me up to a near pulp. I would hate that. No, Daddy. I mean, Captain, please don't take it out on my bussy. I mean, face. Just like a like a like a like a BDSM pirate who just like fucks up on purpose so that they can, their captain will beat them up. <laughs> Longshanks, what are you doing wearing that strange leather face mask? Why is there a zipper on it? (laughs) Longshanks, I can't hear you. Unzip your face mask. I don't know, I just felt in the mood for it. Longshanks, swab the poop deck. I can think of something you can do to my poop deck. The crew claimed that it was Dean's idea to cannibalize the carpenter. (laughs) What a fucking transition. From... (laughs) Us talking about pirate gimps and poop decks too, and then he fucking cannibalized the carpenter. Yeah, which like of of course that was his idea. Like that, I mean that's that's what he's he's been lying in wait for an opportunity to do this for years. He's like, oh shit, I guess we gotta eat somebody. Fuck, this is gonna be so bad. Since he trained as a butcher's apprentice, he was the most qualified to go at it. He removed the carpenter's head, hands, and feet so the body wouldn't appear as human. He disemboweled the body and cut the breast into strips. Dean then wrapped a few of the strips in seaweed and distributed it to the crew. Three refused to eat their former shipmate, but were the first to eat in the morning. The remaining ten crew members survived without a fire and the most limited of rations for 24 days. So they're eating raw human for 24 days? Dude... Cannibalism, I'm sure, is fucking brutal. And I'm sure it's brutal with a fire where you can cook that shit. But raw? That is next level. Ne- no. No, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, I, funny enough, I think we've actually discussed this on the show before. This has already been a thing we've talked about. I have to say that I, I, I think if if we were in this situation, I think I would just have to go ahead and sacrifice myself and let you eat me. Even if I wanted to be selfish and be like, no, I'm going to survive and insist on eating you, the max I would survive is eight hours. <laughs> like, listen, Dave, I, I tell you this every day that you're looking like a snack, but literally you are just a snack. <laughs> yeah, it's basically just like my calves. You've got my calves and then that's about it. Like there's nothing else. So I would just I would just have to sacrifice myself because at least you you could survive for the 24 days. 
Yeah, you know how you know how it's like how we cut the breast into strips. Yeah, there is no strips. It's just rib cage with me. There's, there's you're a strip. You're a Dave strip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like a I'm like one of those little like convenience store beef jerky sacks. Yeah, you're a Slim Jim for sure. Slim Dave. Snap into a Slim Dave. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Look at that technically man who looks like a small boy with anorexia. Let's make him into a fucking processed food snack. There's a there's a corporate Twitter page about you that just shit posts all day. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, it's just like a a f- fun coquettish cartoony version of my face, like doing the thumbs up. No, it's the doing you. You think I'm gonna say no? <laughs> it's like uh, you know, you think I'm gonna say no to cannibalism? Question mark. Oh yeah. I don't even, I don't, I, I don't, I'm a vegetarian. I haven't eaten meat in years. We know. <laughs> but uh, when I, back in, uh, before I was a vegetarian, I think it was back in, it was back in 2009. I was, I worked at Circuit City and Circuit City went out of business. And so I worked there during the whole closure of the, of the company. So I was like working at the location in Bakersfield, California during the whole like going out of business sale and shutting down and all that stuff. And during that like last month or whatever it was as the com- as the company was shutting down, it was like to- it was like a total chaotic free for all where we were just like selling off all the stuff in the in the in the store. There there was just like zero fucks were given. Sometimes like people would just like fucking come to work and then they would just like hang out in the back room and like sometimes i just like i was just like in the middle of working i would just be like i don't feel like being here anymore and i would just like leave but also there was like they were no longer just giving a shit about anything that was happening and so i would just i would just like freely eat of this food in the store because like you know in the front they would have the rack that had all like little snacks and things like that and there would be different and there were like drink cases and stuff like that and i just like was freely eating of it i would just like grab energy drinks and drink them and all this stuff during the day and one of the things was that i just i would like during that time and never before have i ever done this and never before after but i was just like pounding like 10 Slim Jims a day. Like, I would just, like, get these Slim Jims and I would just fucking eat them throughout the day. Did that, did, was that good? Was that a good experience for you? No, not really. It was just like, I was at work. It was, this was, this was, like, obviously over a decade ago. I was in my early 20s. I was also super poor. And I was just like, oh, I can just eat this fucking food. And they just had all these Slim Jims. And I was just pounding these. And no, it was not a good experience. It was just, that was disgusting. That was gross. I would never do that now. Yeah, it sounds terrible. That sounds almost as bad as being forced to eat your your fucking cook or, you know, your carpenter or what, whoever the fuck they ate. Easily as bad of an experience as being forced to cannibalize your crewmates. Pretty much. Future privilege, am I right? When John Stover arrived on Boone Island, Dean led him to the makeshift white tent. Inside, he saw seven men huddled together for warmth, all sick and covered in sores. One castaway later wrote that Stover was shocked by the ghastly figure of so many objects with long beards, nothing but skin and bone, wild, staring eyes, and countenances fierce, barbarous, unwashed, and infected with human gore. Jesus Christ, that's like a mayhem lyric. It's like a Swedish black metal lyric. (laughs) The ghastly figure of so many objects with long beards, nothing but skin and bone, wild staring eyes, and countenances fierce, barbarous, unwashed, and infected with human gore. Like, that's, that's some cradle of filth shit. 
Yeah, somebody uh, somebody burned a church after they said that. Directly after saying that. Dean begged Stover to take the men back to the mainland, but the canoe would capsize with two men in it. With the weather turning stormy again, Stover promised he would come back to rescue the castaways. The men begged him for a fire before he left, and it was the least Stover could do. After Stover left back for the mainland, the men used the fire to cook the breast meat of their former carpenter. They got fucking rescued, and all they wanted was a fire to cook more human. Yeah, like imagine that. Imagine that. That Like, that's so fucked. Because as we talked about before, they can see ships. Like this whole time, for 24 days, they can just see ships. They're not like totally stranded away from civilization. And they just can't access them. And then somebody just because of the dead body that sacrificed themselves and washed up on shore, somebody actually comes out. They're rescued. Somebody has come. But then because it's the fucking 1600s and they don't they didn't come out with some like big fucking boat with a motor and all this shit where they can just be like, get on board, boys. They he just has to leave. They have to just continue being stranded and continue eating dead bodies after somebody finds them. They're just like, we still have to keep eating bodies. Like, that's so bleak. Nah, dude. Just nah. Nah, dude. Like, that's the moment in the movie where it's over. Somebody somebody washes up and they're like, oh, my God, we're saved. And then it's the end. Cut to credits. And then it like has the little text, the, the, the text crawl that explains what happened to them afterwards and all this stuff. But but then they still have to keep eating the corpses of their shipmates. That's so bleak. It took three days before the seas calmed down enough that a rescue attempt could be made. On January 4th, 1711, two boats arrived and rescued the men. They were taken to a tavern in Portsmouth where they were fed slowly so as not to shock their bodies. A doctor tended to the men, cutting off several frostbitten fingers and toes. The most severe amputation was to the cabin boy who lost half his foot. Dean recovered at a friend's house where he immediately wrote his own version of the events, highlighting himself as the hero. Fucking of course. Which is just like such bullshit because he re- reading this story really gives you like it really gives you a sense of like karma is real. because It's like this guy was a total fucking asshole who just like was abusive and just beat the shit out of his out of his crew crew members and was just a total fucking piece of shit. And then it's like, oh, and this is what you get. You get fucking stranded on an island for 24 days where you have to like fucking eat your crewmate crewmates and be exposed to abject fucking misery for 24 days or 27 days. And then to come out of that and be like, I was a hero. I, I, I was the one that had the idea to eat the carpenter. No, just no. Three crew members who were still ill signed it. Can you sign this? Yeah. You know, can we can you can you just corroborate my story that I actually was a hero this whole fucking time? Thanks. Okay, bye. And they were just like, fuck it. I don't sure. I don't care. This was the most horrible experience of my entire life. And we survived. I'll sign your dick. Boone Landing Conspiracies When first mate Christopher Langman was recovered, he returned to London with two other members of the crew. They published their own version of the events, portraying Captain Dean as cowardly, brutal, and a traitor. They put the blame of the shipwreck on him, as they would have reached Boston if he hadn't spent a week dilly-dallying off the coast of Newfoundland. He supposedly cried when they shipwrecked and was the first to suggest cannibalism. He even tried to give up the ship to French privateers on multiple occasions. 
The pamphlet ruined Dean's reputation and forced him out of London. Fucking good. What a piece of shit. This is like the 17th century version of cancel culture, where like there's this dude and he's like, I'm a fucking hero. And then some people come forward with with accusations and it just and it and exposes the years of lies. So this, this isn't a new thing. This immune from future privilege. Captain Dean got canceled. That's really funny to me, though. That's really funny to me to think of him as getting canceled. <laughs> and, you know, he said the same shit, the same thing that people whenever people get exposed for horrible things that they've done. And then they try to say that the person, the people are like serial liars and they're just trying to get attention and fame. You know, he said the same stuff, although I would love <laughs> it. Would be... OK, so Captain Dean, they get rescued. Captain Dean writes his little pamphlet talking about how he's a hero or whatever. Everyone's like, oh, my God, you're great. And then these two people come forward with these accusations. Cut to Captain Dean with a ukulele. <laughs> Definitely not a cannibal. Only thing I've cannibaled is my two cats. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, that doesn't work. <laughs> yes, I eat cats. And then, of course, there's the there's that then there's the like uh, the wave of uh, think piece, you know, reactions to his uh, denial. He uh, Dean made it as a song so that he could copyright strike everybody so that no one can criticize him because they, they're we all know he's a fucking cannibal. <laughs> oh, yeah. The 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 guy on Twitter who who who. uh hypothesized that she she did it in song form so that nothing that she said could be admissible in court because she could claim that it was like parody or something like that i mean she definitely she literally did do it in order to issue copyright strikes to people ethan klein played it on his podcast and she issued a copyright strike oh yeah 100 percent. yeah she put it on itunes as like a song too which is like insane <laughs> like that's insane like that is that is there's no there's no better example of like the horrors of late stage capitalism than somebody record somebody makes a 10 minute song addressing child grooming accusations and then turns it into a a 99 cent itunes single (laughs) like that's insane it's in fucking sane (laughs) oh my god Man, maybe maybe we don't have future privilege after all. Maybe it was maybe it was better when you just fucking got lost at sea and had to eat your friend. Maybe that was better. I mean, as long as it's me eating you, fine, sure. Cuz I want to survive with that horrible survivor's guilt. You know, that's my new kink. I'm looking for that survivor's guilt. I know it's taken me like 2 years to get over Andrew's death, but I want to get over Spandrew's death in like a year and a half. Yeah, we'll be yeah, we'll be like that that one that one German guy who he put out a, a Craigslist ad looking for somebody who wanted to be killed and eaten. And then somebody responded to it and consensually allowed themselves to be killed and eaten. And it was like a sexual thing slash like a it was it was like a sexual thing slash like he wanted to commit suicide, basically. And then the German guy was arrested. It'll be like that. It already is like that. This podcast is just like years of foreplay. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, yeah. You, you cut off my penis and fry it and we eat it together. Who's to say we already haven't? Yeah, I mean, I can't say I can't say anything publicly, but yeah, you have a point. In 1714, Dean joined the Russian Navy and took command of the Yagudil, a 50 gun warship. That's like him, like going to Russia and joining the Navy is like the that's the equivalent of Army Hammer being spotted selling timeshares in the Cayman Islands. Yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> 
The next year, he was given the sleeker 32-gun warship Samson. He was a skilled captain and led over 20 successful raids on enemy ships, gaining the attention of Admiral Fyodor Apraskin, commander of the Baltic fleet. But in 1717, Dean did something that gave further credence to the pamphlet that Langman published in London. That year, the Samson raided two Swedish commercial ships that were traveling through the Gulf of Danzig. Mothers, tell your children not to eat their friends. Because <laughs> if you want to chow down on me, at least there's fire. I got something to say. I ate a carpenter today. Doesn't matter much to me as long as he tasted good. The raid was interrupted by a Royal Navy frigate and a Dutch man of war, which demanded that Dean give up the two vessels. Clearly overpowered, he was forced to give up the ships. While some saw it as Dean doing the smart thing, he was accused of accepting a bribe in exchange for surrendering the two Swedish ships. He was court-martialed, and even though 11 officers supported his testimony, Dean was found guilty. He was dismissed from service with a year in prison. The Tsar lessened the sentence to a demotion to lieutenant and forced to lead a timber ship in the remote Russian region of Kazan. During the trial, Admiral Fyodor Apraskin attempted to get Dean out of Russia by giving him a passport. After the end of the Great Northern War in 1721, Dean was discharged from the Russian army and warned to never return to Russia. Dang, double canceled. Yeah, dude. After his dismissal from the Russian army, Dean used his inside knowledge of Russia to write two detailed reports to the British government. What a what a what a fucking dick. This guy fucking sucks, man. This guy fucking sucks. He's like he defects to Russia because he gets canceled in in, in Britain and then he gets canceled in Russia and he's like I've got some fucking tea on these guys or I got, I got some vodka I guess an account of affairs in Russia June to July 1725 regarded the political fallout following the death of Peter the Great his second was the present state of the maritime power of Russia which gave details on the Baltic fleet he later intercepted a Jacobite courier who was on his way to deliver classified intelligence regarding their spring attack plans to another agent in Rotterdam this, in addition to his Russian reports, brought him to the attention of Prime Minister Robert Walpole. The Secretary of State for the Northern Department, Charles Townsend, 2nd Viscount Townsend, promoted Dean to British Consul to the Port of Austin. The British government provided him with an annual salary of £200, plus expenses, which was very good at the time. After eight years at the position, Dean retired in 1736 at the age of 57. Got, got away scot-free with all that bullshit, plus got to retire at 57? Well, for context, 57 in the 1700s is like 103. Yeah, 50, 57 is like I'm dying next month. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I know that. But th- that was that was the joke because getting to retire at 57 now is probably mostly unheard of. Like we were, we were staying at a hotel somewhere on our trip that we just went on. And there was like a one of the hotel staff, like a janitor. And this dude easily was like 87. And I was like, Jesus, this is fucking bleak. If I'm 87 and I have to work at a hotel as a as like a clean, like a janitor, or like a cleaning staff or whatever, that would be so fucked up. Dean died at the age of 83 in 1762 following an assault and battery in the fields near his home. Well, I mean, he still he lived to 83. He lived to 83, bro. What the fuck? And also he he was murdered. He didn't he didn't die of old age or some kind of disease. He he was murdered at the age of 83. For a man whose crew testified that he was cruel and barbaric to them, it seems a fitting end to a man who seemed to constantly fail upward. I mean, on one hand, yes, fitting end, 
that he died from getting fucking bludgeoned to death like he did to multiple of his crew. But also in the 1700s, he got to live to 83. Like this, this guy, this guy did not get his fucking comeuppance. He like he he skated through controversy after controversy. And despite just being a horrible piece of shit, he got to live to the ripe age of 83 in the 1700s. And then, yes, was beaten to death. But like for the most part, he did not get his karmic his his karmic comeuppance for the shit he did. So I guess, uh, you know, final thoughts Uh, for me, I would say my final thoughts are um, this isn't quite as terrifying to me as the Titan submersible Titanic thing, like being trapped in a. You know, a, a tiny, tiny, tiny space with like three or four other people and like slowly suffocating to death. But I would say that this is a not too distant set close second. You know, I, I don't think I like the idea of being marooned on an island, slowly being worn down by the elements and forced to contemplate ingesting my friends. That sounds pretty fucking bad. The other thing about this that's really disturbing is the fact that Dean had no fucking real comeuppance. Not only did he like completely fuck this up, but then when he went rogue and became a Russian whatever, they also were like gave him a second shot and then he fucked that up and then bounced from there. And then it just it there's no there's no justice for the for the wicked, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a. I think that's like a, a big takeaway from this. And I think we've talked about this on the show before. I think this has definitely been a conversation. This idea that, you know, a hundred years of cinematic storytelling has conditioned us to this idea that, like, bad people get their, you know, get their comeuppance in the end. Like, eventually, uh, your luck is going to run out and you're going to get, you know, some kind of karmic reward for being a shitty person. And, you know, that's due to, to the sort of like structure of a movie that has to wrap up in the end and have an ending and all that stuff. And everything has to be kind of balanced and fit within a structure. Uh, but in real life, while that does frequently happen, there are also probably just as many or more times that we don't really know about where somebody just did the most despicable shit on the planet. And then they just lived their lives and died of old age and nothing really happened to them. Yeah. I mean, a, an annoying, frustrating degree of that. Um, yeah. I mean, this is a perfect example of it. Where it's just like, this guy like forever altered, scarred, and caused the death of all of these dudes, you know, 24 men or whatever. Like, that's fucking brutal. And also, like, what an egomaniac that he made all these mistakes almost died out there and then was like mm, i'm just gonna go be a captain again and and also that like because that that's the thing is like the the whole thing that that whenever um travis barker from blink 182 and that dj they got into that a plane crash like i would never get on a plane again ever and he didn't for a while travis barker didn't he he didn't fly on a plane for years but he just recently got onto a plane like in the last sometime this year, he got onto a plane for the first time since 2013 or whenever that happened. Um, I would never get on a plane again. So n not only did this dude like this happened to him shipwrecked and then he's like, I'm just going to be a captain again. Not only that, but like he was fine. He just did that for years and was fine and nothing ever happened again. And then he died of he died when he was 83 and he didn't even die of old age. Motherfucker got murdered. Probably deservedly so. He probably just pissed off the wrong dude. 
Well, on that note, I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. This has been Deep Cuts. If you'd like to find me online, you can do so at heydavebaker.com, or you can get issues of Halloween Boy, Everyone is Tulip, Forest Hills, Bootleg Society, Star Trek Seven, Voyager 7's Reckoning, and all my other books. Also, right now, there's a pre-order campaign going for Mary Tyler Moorhawk, my new book, which comes out on February 13th, 2024. MTMH! MTMH, baby! If you'd like to pre-order it on Amazon, it's available there. Or if you'd like to pre-order it through Golden Apple Comics, you can do that. And you're going to get some goodies, a little signed book plate from me and some other cool stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, people people were talking People were talking about Mary Tyler Moorhawk in the Discord uh, a while back. It was probably, at this point, it was probably like three or four weeks ago. But somebody made the joke. They were talking about Mary Tyler Moorhawk. They were saying like, like it was it was sometime you plugged it or mentioned it on the show. And then they were talking about it and saying like, oh, that sounds cool. I don't remember what the conversation was, but somebody made the joke of saying Mary Tyler Moorcock. And I wanted to be like, that was originally what it was called. <laughs> well, it's it's not actually accurate, right? Because you remember the first incarnation of it was like Mary Tyler Moorcock was like a Columbo, Mr. Magoo detective old woman. And her name was Mary Tyler Moorcock. And like that was the joke, but it didn't really go anywhere. It wasn't very good. It just kind of evolved over the course of it. But I, I just thought it was funny because someone thought they were like being so like clever, and they were just like Mary Tyler Moorhawk, more like Mary Tyler Moorcock. I was like, that was that was <laughs> that was the origin of it. I was there. So silly, so silly. Yeah, uh, Spandrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can't find me on the internet because I don't use social media, but if you want to pay your respects to the dear beloved Papa Pricey, you can get his book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye, by going to dapricerights.com. You can also go to deepcutspod.com where you can pick up merch and other cool stuff from Deep Cuts, shirts, hats, t-shirts, shoulder patches, all that stuff. You can follow us follow us on social media, uh, going to Facebook, Deep Cuts Podcast, join our Facebook group, Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group, where we talk about the show and make memes. You can join our Discord server, bit.ly.com slash Discord, where we talk about the show, make memes, and uh, do other cool stuff. Um, Next episode, we're going to shout out um, all the people who got us to 500 on the number counting game. We're not going to do it this episode because we just didn't have have time to put the names together, but we'll do it next episode, next week. Um, You can uh, follow us on Instagram at DeepCutsPod. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. You can follow us on a voyage across the sea on our ship where eventually we will crash and then uh, Dave will eat me. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com. This episode of Deep Cuts was written by special guest writer Tim Madura. If you'd be interested in writing an episode of the show, please email andrew at boygeniusmedia.com.